Okay, thank you everybody for coming today. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to introduce Janka Petrovic, who's here um, visiting Ireland for, for the week from, uh, from Sydney. And uh, she's going to talk to us today about dynamics of viral latency and HIV infection. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Okay, so uh, maybe I should say something about our group in Sydney. We, uh, we, are, um, we do mathematical modeling of infectious diseases, but uh, we are uh, different from maybe other mathematical biology groups in the, in the way that our uh, work is um, very much relies on experimental data and our mathematics is kind of the simplest mathematics you could make to explain what you see. It's not really, uh, the idea is not to generate very fancy mathematics, but to explain the medical facts, sort of observations. So maybe you'll find it too simple, <laughs> but anyway. Um, so first, uh, so I'll talk about this dynamics of viral latency in HIV infection. So what is viral latency? I'll first tell you what that is. Do you have a pointer maybe? No. Or, or a stick or something? Or maybe I can point with this. Okay. So uh, when a virus infects a cell, first it enters a cell through the membrane uh, where it can and then it integrates into, viral, uh, into cellular, n into the nucleus of the cell. And then it might start transcribing, producing uh, viral proteins and generating viral particles, or it can just stay integrated and silent. And like that, it cannot be detected by any immune mechanism. Thank you very much. But uh, these latently infected cells uh, live for quite a long time undetected and then can be reactivated when, for instance, the, in, the immune system gets weaker and then they produce virus. So why is it so important for uh, HIV infection? It is because it is a major barrier uh, for the success of vaccination. You know that there is no successful vaccine for, uh, against HIV. And the reason is that uh, before the immune system starts, the adaptive parts, memory generating parts, of immune system starts acting against virus, gets activated, uh, the latent pool is already, already established. So the immune system acts uh, against the productively infected cells, but there is always this latent pool that uh, at any time can get reactivated when uh, viral load gets below detection and then uh, it takes time for for the immune system to get reactivated and it, it doesn't work in the long term. So on the other, uh, the other thing is that it uh, makes uh, antiretroviral therapy not, not a definitive uh, cure 
for HIV because uh, what antiretroviral therapy does is the drugs prevent new infections. So uh, if, if productively infected cells uh, live for a very short time and they can't infect any new cells, so in the end you get no virus that is detectable. But as soon as you withdraw the therapy, uh, these, some of these latently infected cells will become reactivated and start a new chain of infection. So that basically makes uh, antiretroviral therapy a lifelong uh, medication. You can't ever stop it. So uh, it is very important to understand the causes uh, of this viral latency, which are, there, there are many aspects of viral latency that are poorly understood. For example, uh, we don't know if latently and uh, productively infected cells are two distinct populations, like you have cells that turn over very fast and then there's cells that live very long with uh, this uh, integrated virus or if, they, like, if, if there is a whole distribution of lifetimes in between and there are some that are very long lived and some in between and some, yeah. On, then they would, we do not know whether it is in fact that some are latent from the start of, or do they uh, do they go through this productive phase and then for some reason become latent or not? So, uh, even we don't know if uh, production of virus is related to the lifetime, if there's... Uh, so there, there are theories that say that uh, slow producers are longer lived because somehow viral production um, exhausts some cell machinery, or, or maybe it is not. So, in order to answer this this part, uh, we we have this uh, we had this project that we, we decided to look uh, more closely into the life cycle of an infected cell, and uh, maybe find some explanations for that. And then there is a second part of my talk, uh, if I have time, which is how to estimate lifetime of latently infected cells using a so-called, what we called, escape clock. And escape clock is something uh, related to uh, escape, uh, mut mutation and uh, escape from recognition by the immune system. And how to use that to estimate the lifetime of latently infected cells. So we'll see if I have time for that. So first I'll talk about this life, uh, HIV life cycle that we studied from some in vitro experiments that were done. So uh, HIV replication cycle is HIV infects these CD4 uh, plus T cells. So that is a subset of T cells. T cells are uh, uh, the cells of the adaptive uh, immune system that would recognize other infected cells. So cells, when they get infected, uh, they process the foreign proteins from the uh, antigen and they uh, sort of make them into small fragments 
and then they have molecules in them that are called uh, uh, HLA in, uh, or, or MHC, uh, HLA in humans, that uh, capture these fragments or epitopes and uh, present them on the mem cellular membrane. And then other uh, then T cells would uh, recognize these uh, epitopes and if they could connect to this MHC or HLA and uh, epitope complex, they can then, uh, they, they know that that is something foreign in this cell and then they kill them. Uh, so there are CD4 T cells that are more, that are called helper T cells. When they recognize a foreign epitope, they release some uh, cytokines, some chemicals into the environment and uh, that, in, uh, that attracts other immune system cells. And, there, and then there are CD8 plus T cells that actually if they uh, recognize an infected cell, they would kill it at the synapse. So uh, HIV then infects these this helper T cells that do not actually kill infected cells but do a lot of work. Uh, helping other uh, adaptive uh, cells. Uh, so uh, the the way it enters, it enters the cell through this CD4 receptor, and uh, it really needs this CD4 receptor to enter, and then some of the co-receptors as well. And then it integrates itself, it fuses itself into the cellular membrane and there is an envelope that stays at the, at the connection site and it, put, uh, 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 it uh, throws in the capsid uh, that has viral RNA and some proteins, enzymes in it. So uh, viral RNA cannot directly get integrated into the membrane but has to be transcribed uh, it has this, uh, it has to undergo this reverse transcription uh, using some enzyme that it has in the capsid and then it gets translated into this double-stranded DNA which then can go into the membrane and get integrated. And then uh, once it's integrated into the membrane, a cell uh, normally reads what's in the DNA and produces proteins, but now it reads also the viral code and then makes the pro viral proteins that go into the cytoplasm and then they get reconstructed, take part, use part of the cellular membrane and then uh, new virions are formed and go into the environment. So we, we are going in this in vitro experiment to concentrate on this part uh, where uh, vi uh, viral proteins go out into the cytoplasm and get uh, either they get translated and go into the cytoplasm and form virions or not. So uh, what we have is uh, in this experiment uh, our collaborators in Melbourne in, um, were constructed this uh, virus that had in, in its RNA, it, 
it, uh, had in, uh, it had a code inserted for this GFP protein, that green fluorescent protein. So whenever uh, a part, one part of the virus was produced, uh, which is called NEF, uh, that would contain this GFP and it would fluoresce, it would have green light. So then uh, they could measure uh, the intensity of light of in these cells and the number of cells uh, that had this light and the intensity of that light per cell. So they could make a distribution of protein content based on that light fluorescence distribution. So the, the way it was done is first they had to stimulate the, those cells so that they can be more easily infected. Then they, on day zero they would count and uh, infect these cells and spinoculate, That's, they put it into the centrifuge to make the infection more easy. So, because there is a very low probability of infection at any time. So for two hours they would get spinoculated and most of the infection would happen at that time. Then uh, after 18 hours they would put an antiretroviral drug which is raltegravir and that drug would prevent any new infections. So in fact uh, most of the infections were synchronous and happened during these two hours and there were no new infections because there was no uh, the, the amount of production of virus at 18 hours was negligible and after that because of the drug there were no new infections. Uh, so when they had this uh, on day one, they would measure uh, that fax machine is called the machine that measures the distribution of fluorescence in the culture. And then, at the same time, uh, they would then look at and separate cells that were high, medium, or negative in this fluorescence. And then they would separately analyze uh, the unsorted population of cells and sorted populations of cells on day two, three and four. I'll explain that later. So that's basically the experiment. Are they human T cells that they're doing hmm? Are they human T cells? Human from seven donors. Yeah. So but they were uninfected donors. And so uh, what they had uh, is this is the negative population. So they, they had, uh, they decided that, uh, from reading, that this here peak represented uh, the GFP positive. So there would be always some low flu uh, fluorescence that was more like reflection or background, uh, some background light, but these were the peaks that are uh, that corresponded to actual infected cells. So, uh, and these are the data from all these donors and the thick red line is like the average. And then, uh, that this is when I averaged 
the results from uh, day one, that is the, this one, then day two, day three and day four in these, uh, these unsorted populations, just as they are. Uh, so you can see that uh, the peak, the number of cells uh, that were actually positive increased from to, till day two, and also the mean fluorescence or the peak of this moves to the right towards higher uh, fluorescence intensity. And then after day three, they started declining, and also the uh, the fluorescence intensity tended to go down. Now, what is happened with the sorted cells? Uh, what we noticed is, now, this is the actual full distribution of fluorescence. And there is this background peak, which is huge. The black is the unsorted data that we got. This is a huge peak of negative cells, and then there are small. Th this is the small peak that I talked that we uh, it identified as positive cells. So when we sorted them, what we saw is that the positive peak was approximately the same, very similar to what was in the un unsorted. But so that means that the sorting technique is not very efficient. It can't really uh, distinguish very well uh, here in this very small uh, peak. But what it did was basically it took out most of the negative in the sorted medium. So previously, uh, yeah. So what we attempted was to to separate this population on the, the left side of the peak from the population on the right side of the peak. But uh, what happened is we only eliminated this part, yes? Uh, so when we tried to uh, take out the, the ones on the right side, what happened was that we almost completely uh, eliminated any negative cells. And then what we, what, what we got was, this was the unsorted, and what is especially interesting is this sorted high. Uh, they behaved quite differently. This one, the mean fluorescence intensity uh, dropped after day two, and here, mean fluorescence intensity after day two uh, increased all the time. So this was the main difference. And uh, the way we explained it to ourselves first was that uh, in the negative population, there must be some cells that have integrated virus, but are not yet producing uh, any virus at all. And uh, they start producing after day two, three, and four. And uh, they, those, are those are the ones that are responsible for the drop in the intensity. Um, so that was the first thing we figured. And then the second thing is, so that is uh, the mean fluorescence intensity of unsorted 
uh, cells decreases after day two, but it sorted, it increases. And especially in high, we looked at the shape of how it increases. And it seemed that it increased and then was going to reach some plateau. And uh, also the number of GFP positive cells decreases after day two at the fastest rate in the sorted high population and slowest in the unsorted. And also the cell loss is faster in the, between day two and three than between three and four. So uh, this is logarithmic scale, so that you can see that it's not, if, there are nothing, if there's nothing coming, it's just the death that is responsible for loss. It is uh, that there are like two rates. Okay, so uh, that all helped us to make our model. So um, for the death, we figured that it would be either two populations that have different death rates uh, or that it's like a, a log normal distribution of death rates, like in the Cyton model, like for example. Uh, you can't really distinguish between those two. And then also when we looked at this, uh, sort of behavior in the sorted high, which really did not contain almost any negative cells. Uh, we thought of a model in which cells start producing viral proteins after a highly variable eclipse phase. That is, uh, that would be responsible for the difference between the sorted and unsorted. And af af when they start producing, they would produce at a constant rate uh, each cell would produce in constant rate, but the GFP protein or the viral proteins would get degraded within a cell and lost at a certain rate, uh, which is distributed also between the cells. But that, that degradation rate would uh, be either due to the cellular defense mechanisms like cell would uh, in the cytoplasm has its own mechanisms for detecting some foreign matter or it would be just by from the pro uh, virion release that they are because we can't see any finished virions in the cell culture we can only see the gfp protein in the cell so maybe it was losing it because it was producing virus so uh, we call this Delta GFP actually, in the, so that's in the intrinsic. And then uh, in order to account for the, uh -huh. yeah, I already said that about the, so, so this is how, how in each cell uh, uh, the protein production would go. It would, uh, the, we would, say G is the G quantity of GFP protein, and it would be produced at a certain rate and lost at this delta GFP rate, it, uh, also, which is also constant for a cell. And then uh, the content within a cell would go up and then reach a plateau with this. So from this, we could estimate uh, 
from these three points, we could estimate sort of some value for the, this delta GFP and also from the uh, mean fluorescence intensity, we could estimate P and from the plateau here. So uh, we, could, we could estimate these two parameters from, and, uh, from these three points, sort of. That's how I did it, anyway. And then, this would be then the summary, a broad distribution of time to start of, uh, uh, of protein production, a distribution of protein production rates, a distribution of protein degradation, and two types of lifetime or log normal distribution. And when I, uh, so then this distribution, uh, this we, we found from the difference between unsorted and sorted uh, mean fluorescence intensity and numbers. And then these two parameters estimated from this uh, curve in the sorted high population and uh, two types of lifetime from the uh, evolution of cell numbers in sorted high population. And when I put it all here, first I looked at whether we can produce the experimental unsorted and sorted distribution if, if we assign these parameters independently to a cell population. So I, I had 25,000 cells and then I just randomly sampled from these distributions and I put in different uh, standard deviations, different uh, sort of uh, played around with mean values. But uh, try as, uh, I, as, as, as much as I tried, I, couldn't, I could get pretty good uh, behavior of this sorted population, but for unsorted, I could never get the mean fluorescence in intensity to decrease. I could only get it to reach a plateau at best. And that's, you, you can see how that would happen, even with uh, new cells coming, because uh, the estimate of the time to reach the plateau was much, sh uh, much shorter then you can make, you can't really make them go slowly and stay in this region. They would always go towards the higher intensity or to the plateau value. So, um, so that's how I decided from this that there must be some correlation between these parameters. And then I thought which could be correlated. Uh, perhaps death rate and protein production rate, or death rate and uh, GFP content. Maybe they can't, con the cell can't contain as much protein and it just bursts. Or uh, death rate and protein degradation rate, or, oh, not, not here, this is wrong. Uh, or uh, time to production, first production and uh, production rate. Um, Ah, here is the correct thing. Okay, so uh, if higher producer dies die faster, I thought, then MFI would re decrease both in sorted and in unsorted populations. Uh, it, it, there would not be such a difference, qualitative difference in their behaviors. If GFP high uh, die faster than GFP low, 
so the, the content mattered, then death rate inserted would uh, increase later, not decrease as we see. Because later on, uh, there is always more GFP content. So we would not see uh, second death rate lower than the first death rate. Uh, and if death rate and protein degradation uh, were connected, then MFI in unsorted would increase because those with higher, uh, those that have higher degradation would have lower GFP content. Uh, so it's not really what we see. So th the only thing that is left is time to start production and production rate that could be correlated. And so in, this is what I tried. That's when the late producers produce at a lower rate. And when you think it's biologically plausible because uh, there, are some, there were some papers that even talked about it, it's... Uh, the rate of production uh, very much depends on where the viral DNA is integrated within the uh, human chromosome. So if it's integrated at a really barely accessible place, it will take longer to activate it and then it will produce sort of at a lower rate. So then I uh, put in this sort of connection uh, which is exponential between production rate and uh, the time to start production. I just put exponential. I think linear would work as well, but uh, since it's biology, I thought exponential is something that happens more often. Uh, and then I could get the behavior which is quite similar. And actually, if I plotted all the other things like not just the distributions but also the behavior of mean fluorescence intensity and the cell numbers and everything, it all looks very much like what it is in the experiment. So uh, there must be, like this is the answer to this, uh, at this stage to the experiment, uh, that there must be this. Uh, and then uh, what, from this picture, what would be the latently infected cells? So there would be very late and very low producers. And in fact, it was shown in this paper in Cell that talked about this integration and the start of production. Uh, it, they showed that uh, it is... Uh, that the rate of production can be increased if, uh, if uh, the cell gets super infected by another virus. And then, because there is a certain protein within the virus that uh, starts off the cycle of production. And then, if there, the levels of that protein are too low, the production will never take off, but if it comes in then from another virus entering, then it can restart and reactivate the cell. Or some other stressful, you know, stressful event. 
So that, that, that is the picture of latently infected cells that emerges from this model. So in our model, there is no correlation between death rate and uh, latent infection. So uh, the distribution of death rates in these uh, latently infected late producers is the same as in the uh, early producers. It might not be true, but this is sufficient to, to explain. It, even if the, the death rates were different, even that would be consistent, I, I think, but um, it is not necessary to explain this, what we see. So there might be some very long-lived cells in high producers and in low producers. And, you know, the ones that we consider really latent would be these very late producers that are long-lived. But it's a subset of all this. So maybe I can go quickly through this escape clock because I really like this. This is, uh, so as I said, uh, viral escape is uh, the consequence of very high mutation rate of HIV. And some mutations allow a strain of virus to evade immune recognition and replace the so-called wild type virus, the initial type that was recognized and that is more, the most common strain. Uh, so, as I said before, we we might consider infected CD4 cells for the purpose of this uh, as productively infected or activated or, and latently infected or resting, not producing. Uh, and then uh, produ productively infected cells, we know that they uh, have quite fast turnover on average and that is about half-life of one per day which was measured in antiretroviral therapy from the decay of virus. And is it really that latently infected cells have slow turnover, live long, uh, or, uh, or do they have faster turnover, but uh, we, don't, we see constant levels because they are uh, quickly replaced? So uh, what do we see in resting cells? So uh, first, uh, let us just consider an infection uh, with a single strain and what we see, what would we see uh, in productive and resting infected cells, in numbers of productive and resting infected cells, if resting cells uh, had lived infinitely or if they turned over very fast, as fast as productive. So if they turned over as fast as productive, both populations of productive and resting infected cells would actually follow the viral load because uh, they would get infected, die, and we would only see the new infections that are proportional to the quantity of virus. Uh, if they lived forever, then what we would see is we would see productive that are uh, that follow the viral load and resting that follow the integral of viral load in proportion would be proportional to the integral of viral load if we had two strains of virus 
no matter how they uh, behaved in time, let's say they behaved like this, uh, then uh, if resting cells were and uh, productively activated cells turned off over equally fast, then we would have uh, uh, um, the DNA copies of each strain follow the viral load in resting and in productive, and we would have the same percentage of wild type both in plasma, which is in viral load, and in resting infected cells. Uh, if uh, they uh, turned over slowly, the, if the resting cells turned over slowly, then we would have, uh, this would be uh, the viral load in plasma, and then what, what we would see in resting would be much lower percentage of, uh, or oh, much higher percentage of wild type than in plasma. And uh, if uh, uh, resting cells lived forever, it would be actually the percentage in resting cells would be proportional to the uh, ratio of integrals of wild type virus and total viral load. Um, so this is uh, what we would see. Uh, in summary, we would see uh, high death rate fraction wild type is the fraction in plasma. Uh, if racing cells do not die, then the fraction of wild type in then would be integrals. And uh, in between, we would have a fraction in between those two. So uh, again, uh, we had experimental data from uh, mo monkeys infected with this SIV, which is the monkey type of HIV. And they were, initially that virus was wild type in this gag epitope, this fragment. And then uh, all these monkeys developed this particular mutation. So we could follow these two strains in time. In plasma first, uh, where we could get numbers of wild type and EM RNA copies, and also in, in resting cells. And that was done by facts sorting for these markers that identified resting CD4 cells. And then uh, by uh, nested PCR, which only gave us the fraction of wild type in resting CD4s. We didn't get the exact numbers. So uh, we designed, uh, also we looked at the fractions uh, in plasma, uh, then this, this is the black line, is the fraction of wild type in plasma, then uh, the blue line is the integral, uh, the, the ratio of integrals in plasma, and the green points are the fractions in the uh, resting infected cells. And as we can see, in Five of the ten animals we get really that the fraction follows, the fraction in resting cells follows the ratio of integrals in plasma as if they lived forever. And in four it is somewhere in between, and in only one animal it follows actually the instantaneous 
uh, uh, fraction of Waltep in plasma. So uh, we did design a simple model where latently infected cells or resting infected cells uh, are generated sort of or are a fraction of productively infected cells at any time and they die with the death rate of delta L. Um, so uh, this we could s uh, solve, uh, okay, so in fact, what we did, did, we don't know the productively infected cells, we know the viral load, so we replace this, we know that the productive are proportional to viral load, so we replace this with uh, viral load instead of infected cells, and then there's the different coefficient. And then we could solve it, but unfortunately we didn't know the numbers of latently infected cells anyway, so this was useless. And then we did the other thing, so we transformed these equations into equations for the total number of latently infected cells scaled by this FL, and then the friction of wild type in latently infected cells. We got the other equations, and uh, in fact you can solve them analytically, they are just linear, inhomogeneous, but it's very complicated expression anyway, not very illuminated. So uh, we did it numerically, we found the best, we just have one parameter now and the, all these other we have uh, uh, from experimental data. So we could find the best delta L for each animal and we found these solutions. So uh, the green points are again the experimental data and the black, is, black line is the best fit solution from our equations and this is the death rate that we got. So here we got like the, the infected, uh, latent infected cells that virtually lived indefinitely and then we had some about 10 times lower death rate in these four animals and this death rate of 0.5, which is approximately like, or at least 0.5, which is approximately what the death rate of productively infected cells was measured. Um, so, why do we get such a large range? Uh, you see, especially this one, that's outlier. So, we looked at the correlation with the viral load, death rate and the total viral load in each uh, animal in the chronic phase and we saw that there is a positive correlation between these. So the explanation is, the most probable explanation is that this, what, what is measured in this experiment is actually not the integrated DNA but it's the DNA content in a cell which is integrated but also the DNA content which is non-integrated and uh, that's just floating in the cytoplasm and if there is a lot of virus there, uh, there would be not just the uh, virions that would integrate into the, uh, just one that would probably integrate into the uh, chromosomes but there would be some from 
other virions that were coming all the time and that were just contaminating the cytoplasm and that gets degraded in time. But while the viral load is high, it contaminates it all the time. So the more virus there is, there is more contamination. And that's why we probably observe this, this correlation between viral load and death rate. So also we could find this uh, number, the, how that does the number of in, uh, latently infected cells or resting infected cells look in time from our two equations from the model. And we get these large numbers because of this scaling by the factor F. So, uh, but we can see the behavior that most of the latent pool is filled very early in the infection and then it stays virtually constant or increases at a very, very low rate. And only in this animal that had this very exceptionally high viral load and low death rate, we see this peak which occurs in the vir viral load as well. So that's when we get this contamination probably. So we have to uh, do some more tests to, to verify this contamination and that it is the reason why we get this. So we estimated a very low death rate of resting infected cells in half the animals. Some, uh, it was positively correlated with viral load and uh, latent reservoir is laid early in the infection. And yeah, that's it basically. So this is our, uh, the list of our collaborators here in the University of Melbourne. They did the escape clock. These did the, uh, in Burnett Institute, they did uh, the HIV life cycle. These, these are the people from our group that helps. This is the, uh, our head of group and we were founded by the ARC. Thank you. Questions? Do you know why treatments do not affect latent infected cells? Oh, that's because uh, treatment just prevents new infections. It doesn't kill infected cells. So, if infected cells die by themselves, they they will uh, die during treatment and most infected cells eventually die and that's and virus cannot uh, virus cannot really survive in blood if it doesn't infect another cell very quickly the clearance rate is very very high so vi viral load drops at the rate as infected cells drop and when you know, productively infected. But those that do not produce virus, if they live long enough, then they won't, you know, they won't be affected it, it, because it, uh, it doesn't kill the cells. There will always be some cell that contains some virus in it that is not yet activated. And uh, if you drop the therapy, uh, it will start producing virus and infecting other cells. And especially since the number of cells, uh, your CD4 cells, uh, the patients 
HIV patients lose a lot of these CD4 cells normally during the infection. And so uh, there is not much to infect, actually, not much left to infect. Uh, so when you, when you uh, prevent new infections, the CD4 cells recover and your number of CD4 cells increases. And now there is this cell that contains a virus and it wakes up. It has a lot of other cells to infect. And actually the infection then starts very fast. Yeah, that's it basically. If it's died in the meantime, but some of them apparently live for tens of years. So you can't really stop therapy. It's enough to have one or two, you know. Is there anything else you want to ask? I'm going to ask one anyway. When you're giving this description of um, the correlation between the time to start and producing virus and how productive it was, I don't see what was specific about HIV in that. Would that not be the case if that was the mechanism at work then for any retrovirus? Possibly, yeah, possibly. Yeah, it's the experiment here is for HIV, yes, but it might be very well. But, but not every retrovirus infection is chronic, is it? I'm not sure, yes. Uh, for instance, I don't know. What is, is herpes retrovirus? No, no I'm not sure, is it? Yeah, it is, it can, but it is not... Mm. I'm not sure if all retroviruses... Maybe they, have, they can also evolve those that do not form. Like, uh, I think uh, hepatitis doesn't, hepatitis C, for instance, it doesn't form any latently infected cells. But I'm not sure if it's a retrovirus. Yeah, but, but it's not, uh, I think it's not the matter of it being a retrovirus. It's a matter of how it starts uh, to, uh, to, to, yeah, to, to read the code once it's integrated. The, uh, the what's it called, uh, reverse transcription is not essential in this. It is post-integration events that are important. So what, what triggers the, the reading of that code? Yeah, so, so it I guess I was just wondering what's specific about HIV in that description. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think the specific thing is this, uh, for instance, in HIV it could be this, there is this protein called TET that uh, it, it has to have large enough uh, concentration near the integration site in order to trigger the reading of that site and silence the other stuff. So, you know, if, if a, a normal virus, which is not a retrovirus, had similar sort of mechanism that triggers it or something else, that could be what's doing it. It could be common to others. I think there have been attempts to pharmacologically 
um, rather than suppress the, the um, Oh yeah, yeah, there was. There's, for instance, uh, there were some very uh, bad things that happened when people gave, you know, the tries to give inflammatory uh, drugs that would cause inflammation. In, in with the attempt to activate and certainly this would activate something but would cause so much damage and it's never certain that the, it would activate every latently infected cell but it did so much damage to the animal luckily not the patient but there's no way of targeting in particular the infected cells as opposed to just targeting all like uh, all cells in the body <laughs> yeah something that they're not you're not sure like it's not just it's not clear that the only reservoir of cells that are infected are cd4 cells right it could be yeah. it could be that this collection of cells that are not part of the cd4 yes yes macrophages or or the dendritic cells could also be infected and which ones are actually the late, mm -hmm. most latent it is thought that it is mostly the resting CD4 cells, but it's not certain either. But if you can't really deliver something to a latently infected cells because they are not seen by anything while they are latently infected by definition. Yeah. Mm. There was also one I've seen as the early ones you have a GFP reporter for HIV. I was wondering if they thought of doing, and they're doing it in vitro anyway, I wonder how they thought of doing it with um, Tomox microscopy in that case, because you might be able to measure the, the period of an action. Yeah, we are, we are trying to find someone who would do that. I think in Burnett Institute there is a, a group that has that microscope, but they are not equipped to deal with HIV because HIV is highly, like you have to have a special protocol for, for the lab that uses HIV and the group that does uh, two photon microscopy that, that doesn't do HIV at the same time. So, you know, uh, we are trying to put them together, yes. That would be really, really good, yeah. Well, if there's no further questions, we'll just thank the speaker again. She'll be here for the rest of the day if anybody wants to talk to her afterwards. Thank you.